Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, it looks like the Premier is leaning towards not resuming classes before the end of the school year. What's taken them so long to make the decision? And NASI has officially given the green light to mixing and matching some of our vaccine shots. Dr. Brian Litchie is going to talk to us about that. And as we get closer to reopening the country, many employers are wondering just what it's going to take and what the work situations are going to look like in the future. We've got an interesting report about that that we're also going to cover. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast. It starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We still don't have a definitive word right now about what's going to happen with the schools. I mean, we're into June already, and there's only a few weeks left in the school year anyway. And, uh, well, it's a little bit problematic right now. But, and with June here, parents are waiting to learn if children are going to go back, whether there's going to be in-class learning and anything else. Global's Dave Woodard has the latest. Nothing from the Premier's office yet, but reports from the Toronto Star and others this morning citing sources close to the Premier saying that Doug Ford is going to keep schools closed. That means children who've been at home since April will likely remain at home, learning remotely for the rest of the school year. The reason hasn't been given, but last week Dr. Peter Uni, the scientific director on the COVID-19 science advisory table, warned that if Queen's Park were to open schools, then everything else would have to wait, meaning that a June 14th reopening would likely be pushed back. Ontario is now the only province in Canada where schools remain closed to in-person learning. Dave Woodard, Global News. So, uh, what is going to happen and what are the implications of this? Uh, to uh, talk about this, please to welcome the back to the program, Jonathan Shearer. Jonathan is a uh, health journalist, investigative reporter. Uh, Jonathan, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for time popping in on the show again today. Great to be with you, Bill. I'm trying to really attach some logic to what, what we're hearing out of the, the Premier's office these days, that if he opens the schools and everything else has to go back. I'm, I'm, I'm not quite sure I follow what he's actually trying to accomplish here. Well, I mean, the broader goal he's trying to accomplish is to minimize the chance that we have a fourth wave in resurgence either in the summer and um, he's been told by his science advisory table that two things could contribute to the risk of a fourth wave. Uh, one would be uh, reopening uh, the economy too soon, and the other would be uh, reopening schools without proper safeguards. The science table has essentially concluded that you can do one uh, uh, potentially safely in a manageable way, but not both. If you do both, uh, then the risk of uh, precipitating a fourth wave is just too great. And so that's really the choice that the Ford government has to make, and we're expecting an answer to that. So if he were to open the schools, we're getting into the hypothetical, I guess, here, we would anticipate then that the, uh, the, the rest of the opening wouldn't happen until July then? I'm sorry, anticipating that the... If, if he was going to let the kids go back to school until the end of June, then the, the, the grand reopening, you know, the commercial, elementary, all this sort of stuff, uh, and, and stores and everything else would probably have to wait until after Canada Day. Yes, yes. And, and that's one of the factors, and, and it, it, it's one that needs to be highlighted because um, it's not an apples-to-apples apples comparison when we're talking about schools and the economy. Yeah. If the economy is opened in a safe and smart way in June, uh, there's a chance that that can be sustained uh, going forward. If schools were to reopen, uh, it would be for just a matter of a, of a few weeks, yeah. and then they'd be closed anyway for the summer. Um, and so that has to go into the calculus, too. 
So uh, a couple of things here, that, and, and I wanted to get your read on this, because every time we've talked about this on the program, I get a plethora of emails. So what about this? What about this? And, and you just mentioned, you know, if they go back there, is it going to be a safe environment for the students and for the teachers, for that matter? Uh, and, and one of the questions I'm getting from an awful lot of our listeners these days is, they've been shut down for the longest time right now. Why haven't they been doing those retrofits on those schools in the meantime? Well, they, they cost money. And, sure. Um, and... Uh, uh, you know, and it just it hasn't happened. Uh, and, and the biggest area where it hasn't happened is is, is ventilation. We know mm-hmm. that COVID nineteen primarily transmits as an airborne uh, uh, virus, um, and so properly ventilating uh, air air inside is critical. Uh, but that costs money. Um, that takes planning, and that sort of investment and work um, has been only done to a very, very small degree. Uh, and so certainly uh, you hear from, from teachers uh, that they don't feel safe going back uh, to a school environment in class where those measures haven't been taken. And because and, we've heard those same things from teachers and from parents for that matter as well. And, and I know that in, in my mind's eye, and I'm sure there are listeners, as soon as you start talking about this, we can start picturing in our heads uh, some of these old buildings that are still being used as schools. I mean, they, you know, they don't have air conditioning. We just heard it's going to be going up into the mid-30s sometime in the next two or three days. You, would you want your kids going back into an environment like that when you still know that air circulation is going to be a factor in, in the possibility of, of transmitting the virus? So it, it sounds as if just the, the very circumstance of what we're dealing with here, Jonathan, indicates that this, this is not going to happen. Schools are going to remain closed. No, I, I, I think you're right. And I think that the province is drawing upon the lessons from earlier this year when they did reopen schools uh, in February. Um, and um, in hindsight, not just in hindsight, at the time I thought it was a, a risky move with variants coming from Europe. Uh, and it turned, it, it turned out not to be sustainable. Um, we had to shut them down again in April. So, um, and not much has changed in a positive way in terms of taking uh, added safeguards since then. And then you raise a great point about uh, high temperatures and, and the weather. I mean, one of the primary recommendations uh, to improve ventilation in schools uh, is to open windows. But if it's 30 plus degrees uh, outside and uh, there's no air conditioning, in classrooms, and kids are wearing masks. How feasible is it to to use that as an option in in June? Yeah, exactly. I mean, even even if there's no pandemic going on right now, I mean, it's it's problematic, especially. And, and we're talking elementary school kids, maybe until the end of June. But I mean, high school students are usually out by the middle of June anyway. So we're only talking about a week or so. So I guess you have to ask yourself, why would you bother even for the sake of a couple of weeks? Yeah, and, that, and that's certainly an important question uh, for those who don't have kids who are in high school. Uh, as you point out, the last week, week and a half of high school is taken up by taking exams. Yeah. Um, and so if you open up uh, with three weeks to go, uh, you, you might get seven, eight days of in-classroom uh, uh, teaching, and then you're on to exams. 
Why then, what in many people's minds, are we getting the contrary points of view on this? Uh, you know, Dr. Williams, the outgoing uh, chief medical officer, of course, uh, just stated a couple of days ago that he's, he's favoring the return to school for at least a couple of weeks. Uh, we had uh, Dr. Peter Uni on the program uh, yesterday, I guess it was. Uh, he said the same thing. He says as long as it's done safely, it's the best thing to do. And they're talking about mental health issues and things of this nature. So, I mean, those are two of the top experts right now that we're told that the Premier likes to lean on, uh, yet he seems to be moving the other way on this. Yeah, well, I mean, the thing is, because of what's happening in the world around us, because of the emerging variants of concern, uh, in particular the one from India, mm -hmm. uh, which appears to be uh, growing in Ontario after becoming the dominant strain in other countries like the UK, um, there's a risk of a fourth wave regardless of what we do. There's some risk. Um, and so... From a political perspective, as a premier, do you want to take a move now that you might be blamed for in the event of a fourth wave that might come uh, in, in large part due to factors outside your control? And, and so, you know, the, the political answer to that question might be no, it, it's not worth the risk, particularly if the benefit is literally getting kids into school for really just days. Mm hmm We've been told, because there, as, as we've all known, and you've written about this, uh, some bad choices made by this government, and, and maybe they've gone done too much too soon, and, and we saw that with the, the, the waves that have come on, and we know the public opinion polls right now are not very favorable to the Premier. Uh, we're also told, uh, according to what the Star was reporting yesterday, there's likely to be a cabinet shuffle in the next week or two, uh, and some of the folks that might have offered contrary opinions may find themselves out the door, or at least giving you know minor positions in a situation like this. Uh, I, I wonder what's going on in the Premier's head these days, Jonathan, where he's leaning and saying, look, it, I don't know who I can trust right now, because the advice I've been given in the past has got me into trouble and he's down to what 21 percent approval rating or something like that uh there's an election a year from now and i'm sure that's not lost on him either no and when you talk about david williams i think it, it it's probably pretty evident to doug ford uh that much of the advice that david williams has given in the past year has turned out to be bad advice yeah uh that david williams uh views are not widely respected in fact they're widely rejected by many Ontarians. And so doing what David Williams recommends now uh, presents a real risk to Doug Ford. And, and, and frankly, doing the opposite uh, is, is something that would be appealing to, to more people. Uh, but but Doug, Doug Ford uh, is a pragmatist. And, and when I say, that, and, and a populist, he, 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 yeah. he does pay attention to uh, what he thinks will be popular among voters. Uh, he has shown um, a tendency to change his positions over time if he thinks the public mood has either shifted or if he thinks he has misread uh, the public mood. And so I think you have to view, as you do, uh, the decisions he's making now with how he frames those decisions with the election coming up next year. Because there are premiers that have done pretty well through this. I mean, vis-a-vis -vis popularity, et cetera, and especially in the Atlantic provinces. There uh, have been a couple of elections out there, and, and you know the, the incumbents, of course, have done pretty well in that. And I'm sure he's looking at that with a certain amount of envy. Uh, there's a story that I heard from Richard Brennan, uh, who worked in Queen's Park for many years, told a couple of weeks ago that... Uh, 
that this medical advice that he got from Dr. Uni and others, basically, you know, to, to shut everything down, uh, was where he was going on this the last time, Jonathan, but his cabinet talked him out of it. So we, now, we don't know who in the cabinet actually, uh, you know, was stating those opinions. We've heard some rumors about that as well. So uh, from a political standpoint, I figure he's probably thinking he's a man alone right now. I can't rely on these guys uh, from the political standpoint. I've, I've got to go with the medical expert here, and just this is going to be his call and his call alone, I would think. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that you're right. I think that... Um at the end of the day, he knows that uh, he will wear, wear the consequences of whatever choices are made, um, and he, he needs to look out for that, and, and, and he will. Um, so uh, that, that certainly is shaping uh, his, his decisions. Um, and, and when you talk about listening to the scientists, you know, there's divergence of views, too, yeah. right? Even on the science table. Uh, there are five people who did not vote for uh, or did not sign uh, uh, to the recommendations. One of them was a clear dissenter, David Christman. The other four are members of the government, so it's not clear whether they disagreed with what was recommended or whether they recused themselves because of their position with the Ministry of Health. Uh but there's a split of decision, a split of opinion. And there's also, and this hasn't gotten that much publicity, but those who have been pushing hardest to reopen schools have argued that it's necessary to protect the mental health of, of, of youth. Yeah, mental health of youth is critical. It was critical before the pandemic. It's certainly even more critical now with the stresses that we're facing. But the only study in Canada to date about mental health and adolescence and the pandemic, which was published uh, in a peer review uh, uh, publication uh, in the last couple of weeks, found that while mental health uh, concerns were significant among adolescents, uh, very concerning during the pandemic, that there was no statistical connection about the prevalence of those mental health concerns and whether students were going to school in person or working remotely. In other words, all adolescents were feeling uh, a negative, I should say all, many adolescents were feeling a negative impact because of the pandemic, but that was true whether they were in person in school in some provinces or whether they were studying remotely. The, and I understand that, I, I, you know, when we've talked to the Premier, he, he wants to do what is best for everybody. I get that. But, you know, looking through this from a political lens, uh, keeping the schools closed seems to be the best option here. And, and as you mentioned, there is a possibility of this variant from India that's got a lot of concern. And even the doctors that like the idea of opening schools have said, look, you better watch out for this because it, it could come up and bite us again. Uh, if he keeps them closed, he can come back and simply say, look, I did everything I could. Uh, you know, I didn't make any mistakes this time. We tried to keep them closed. So I, I, I got to feel uh, our, our global news team is just telling me that one o'clock this afternoon he's going to make an announcement about this i, I got to feel that he's going to shutter these things down and just say look let's just lay low here and we'll, we'll revisit this in september yeah. and especially when the benefit based on the number of days left in the school year is relatively minimal yeah right we're not talking about making a decision in march where there's still say three months of the school year yet left we're literally speaking about you know, maybe five to ten days of, of, of learning, then exams, uh, and for younger kids, 
uh, typically the last week of the school year is is uh, focused more on enjoying being with each other, which is critically important right now too. Sure. Yeah. Uh, but that's also something that can happen this summer if we're able to open up gradually and safely. Well, we'll uh, find out, I guess, in a couple of hours now just which way he's going to go on this. Uh, always great to get your perspective on this, uh, Jonathan. Thanks so much for the time today. Great talking with you again. Great talking with you as well, Bill. Take care. Take care. Jonathan Schur, of course, uh, investigative journalist and uh, specializing in healthcare matters, of course, uh, with a law degree, too. So he's looking at, uh, at the pragmatic side, but also the legal uh, obligations that a government like this would have as well. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, if you've been waiting to find out just what to do about your second uh, COVID vaccine shot, official advice has finally come down. NASA has now given the green light to mix and match the vaccines. Uh, Global Sandy Salerno has the details. If your first COVID-19 shot was AstraZeneca, you don't have to get the same vaccine for your second dose. People who received a first dose of AstraZeneca COVID shield vaccine may receive either AstraZeneca of COVID shield vaccine or an mRNA, so Pfizer-BioNTech or Moderna vaccine for their second dose. Dr. Teresa Tam says Canadians who had Pfizer or Moderna first should be offered the same shot for dose two, but if not readily available, NACI is recommending either one can be used to complete the vaccine series. But if you can't find it or you don't know what someone had, whether it was Pfizer or Moderna for the first dose, then another mRNA vaccine can be considered. NACI did not recommend that anyone who received Pfizer or Moderna get AstraZeneca for round two. Sandy Salerno, Global News. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Dr. Brian Litchie. Uh, Dr. Uh, Litchie, of course, is an associate professor in pathology and molecular medicine at McMaster University's Immunology Research Center. Uh, doctor, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us again today. Ah, good to hear from you again. Yeah, are you surprised by the by the news from from NASI on this? No, not at all. Um, I think it was pretty predictable. Um, as in, as an immunologist, uh, we know that uh, um, heterologous prime boost, where you use a different uh, form of a vaccine for the prime, and then the boost actually works very often better than using the same thing twice. Uh, it just was a matter of time to get the data from studies that were ongoing in England and Spain to uh, convince Health Canada and NASI that uh, this was a reasonable thing to do here. But there seemed to be some trepidation about it initially. And, and as you said, it's, this is not unusual, is it, really, when it comes to, to vaccines and boosters? It's not. I think <laughs> I think everyone's being extremely cautious right now. Um, and so there are very specific guidances there, right? So um, what they're saying is that no matter what you had the first time, uh, they think it's fine to have either of the mRNA vaccine boosters, um, but they're not recommending the AstraZeneca booster if you didn't have it the first time. Mm-hmm. It's the first time that people get the AstraZeneca vaccine that, that they're at risk, um, at some low risk for the blood clot um, phenomenon that you've, you've all heard about. But um, it's just very specific guidance so that uh, people are clear on what... Um, Makes sense or is it possible for them um and they're being careful is is there a major difference between astrazeneca and and the pfizer and moderna there is because the astrazeneca is is it's um it's basically a a, a cold virus an adenovirus that expresses the antigens the spike antigen from uh the coronavirus so that that leads to an immune response against the coronavirus. The other two are, are these mRNA vaccines. So they're a little simpler, and they simply 
cause the expression of the spike protein. There's no virus involved. So uh, what I'm finding interesting about this then is, is uh, and I guess one of the questions with, uh, in my mind anyway, is uh, what's going to happen with AstraZeneca? I'm getting the sense that, uh, that the experts are now kind of weaning us away from this and saying, okay, if you got the second shot, God bless you, you're okay. But uh, I, I get the sense that because of some of the concerns about AstraZeneca, that may just kind of fade from the scene in the, in the not-too-distant future maybe. It may in Canada. Um, we now are getting enough supply of the mRNA vaccines that uh, that you know people will have the option of of getting the mRNA vaccine booster if they they received AstraZeneca first. Although that is the one situation where it's fine to get the booster because if you didn't have a bad reaction the first time, you'll be fine the second time. Um, you know, it's funny you were saying that this is standard practice essentially. I'm sure none of your listeners can remember or could tell you which brand of tetanus vaccine they had when they were a kid mm-hmm. or what brand they had as a booster, you know, later, because we never used to talk about this. No, I know. But but it, the truth is, I'm sure there were different versions of each of them because, you know, the recommendation is you get a tetanus booster over 10 years. Not everyone does that, but, but if you do that and you, you know, you live as long as you and I, you might have had a few of them and, Nobody ever knows what they were, and I'm sure they weren't the same each time. All I can remember, doctor, when I was a kid, was I had to go to the doctor, like you say, and you go into the office, and, and bingo, you, it was just called a booster. We, I, yeah. And nobody nobody asked back then, hey, what are you putting in my arm here? Or, you, or the parents didn't even care. But uh, we're, we're, I guess, much more concerned about this because we're, we're living this pandemic right now, and I guess we're, we're probably just overwhelmed with all, all the, the information that we're getting now about, about vaccines and, and where they're being developed and the, uh, the after effects of them, too. Yeah, and that's... That led to Nazi being very specific about their guidance. But uh, like I said, it's not surprising. Um, in fact, the, the data that has come out about using um, a mixture of, like using any of the two, <clears throat> is that um, the first news that came out was that the incidence of um, a, a, an immune reaction, what I mean by that is, you know, a fever or aches and pains or, mm-hmm. you know, feeling crappy for a day, is a little bit higher if you use two different ones. So that's the first thing they knew because that happens right away. That's, you know, the next day you may feel that um, after you, your booster. And it's a little more common if you if you mix, mix and match. Um, that predicted that those people were getting better immune responses, and it turned out to be true. So the reason they you're a little more likely to get a fever or aches and pains after you get a mixed booster is because it works better. And that's just saying that, you know, it's working, that your immune system is reacting strongly and, and that's leading to that the, the, the fever and chills or the aches. I, I, my farmers, yeah, my pharmacist told me that when I got the flu shot uh, last year, uh, mm-hmm. and I said I feel like crap was in the next day, and he said that's a good thing. He says that means that you, your body's you know working it, and uh, I, I said well, it doesn't feel like it's a good thing, but he says it's going to pay off in the long term, and and that's I guess one of the, the I guess positive aspects of this. Uh, mm-hmm. We want to reassure people though, I guess, doctor, and this is always something that we have to be cautious about. Is uh, I know there's a lot of concern about AstraZeneca and those side effects, but as you said, uh, for people that 
similar to getting the second shot, if it's AstraZeneca, uh, you're probably going to be just fine. We had a, a, a kind of a free-for-all clinic here in uh, Hamilton uh, over the weekend on Saturday and Sunday at uh, one of the health centers. It was just, you know, show up and line up, and, and, but it was AstraZeneca for the second shot. And uh, talking to a few people, now I didn't get AstraZeneca when I got mine, so I wasn't in that line, but I was talking to a few folks down there, and, and they said the exact same thing. I said, you know, it didn't bother us at all. Uh, so he said, well, the second shot's not going to bother you at all, too. So, I mean, if, if that second shot was AstraZeneca, more than likely these people are going to be just fine, aren't they? Yeah, uh, if they had it the first time and they were fine, it's, it's uh, even safer the second time. And if if the the ones who had AstraZeneca are now going to go back and maybe get Pfizer or Moderna as their second shot, you're saying there is a possibility then they're going to feel kind of miserable for a day or so, but, but it's going to be in the long haul, probably even better for them. Exactly, yep. Now, what's what's the, the concern here about about uh, about the supply chain in situations like that? I mean, if there's going to be uh, this this policy, which is now going to be in place, are we concerned about having enough Pfizer and Moderna for the people that are going to be lining up right now? Well, that's part of what guides their um, decision making and, and their, their guidance. Okay. So, uh, Nazi's been told that there um, will likely be a, a sufficient availability of the mRNA vaccines that they can give this sort of guidance now um, that people can, you know, essentially everyone could get boosted with that if necessary, or those people who received AstraZeneca the first time, they can be boosted with AstraZeneca, um, and and the numbers should work out. Yeah, Otherwise, they wouldn't have been suggesting that because it would have put too much pressure on a little too much shopping around for the mRNA vaccines. Um, and, and creating a shortage there again, which they're trying to avoid. Somewhere out there in the, in the, uh, the atmosphere is the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. I know there were some problems, and they've kind of pulled back on that just a little bit, but is that of the same family as, as the Moderna and AstraZeneca, or uh, the uh, Pfizer, probably? No, it's more uh, analogous to the AstraZeneca. Oh, okay. Uh, the advantage to the AstraZeneca and the, the, the Johnson & Johnson are that... Um, it's, it's a, a more established or an older technology, and it doesn't require as significant a cold chain. Uh, and the Johnson & Johnson one has been tested as a single dose, mm-hmm. uh, no booster. Uh, so that will be the most useful for um, you know third world countries and such that have more of a challenge in uh, the cold chain on the one hand and organizing and, keep, and tracking people to give boosters, uh, on the other hand. So um, we may not end up needing it in Canada um, and make you know the stuff that we reserved available through um, uh, our international agreements to other countries. So that yeah, that may be something we see in, in Africa, other places like that. We may never even see the dosages up here in Canada or the United States. So my understanding is the United States actually never even used the AstraZeneca that they were producing, uh, simply because they had enough of the other stuff. So that's an interesting aspect of this as well. Let me ask you, if I could, Doctor, about the vaccination program itself. And, and of course, the provincial government's just announced uh, that they're basically saying, look, we've got a lot of supply here. We can probably accelerate that, that process. Uh, is, for instance, I mean, I got my first one, uh, when was it now? First week of April, I think it was. Uh, I'm scheduled to go in the middle of August for the next shot. Uh, I, I apparently can move that up now if, if I'm able to get an appointment. Are you comfortable with that, that, that whole thing about accelerating this? Yeah. Um, if, you know, people may remember that the original trial had a four-week interval. Yeah. And then there was controversy about pushing that out longer. 
but um, the, the mathematical modeling said that it was more important to get uh, more people their first shot than the first people their second shot in terms of, you know, controlling how many people were being hospitalized and, and, and limiting spread of the virus. So they shifted the second shot out. But n- now that, uh, you know, supply is picked up, they're thinking about shifting it back or, or already are doing that for the first people. So um, anything beyond four weeks, we now know uh, works great. And how long does it take for the vaccine to actually take hold? In other words, I, I, I've heard some people say, well, I got my first shot uh, whenever it was, a week or so ago, and say, I'm fine now. And, and a, a number of folks like yourself, experts in the field, have simply said, no, it, it takes a while for it to actually build up in your body to give you the antibodies, et cetera. It's, is it a week, two weeks? How long does it actually take until you're going to get the full value for that first shot? For most people, um, it would be very easily detectable, the response. Uh, in a, you know, on a blood sample mm-hmm. within a week, okay. um, but it will probably peak at two, maybe even three weeks um, following the first dose. The second dose is much quicker, so uh, boosters um, take what's already there and, and ramp it up. And you know, within five or seven days, then you're it's as good as it'll ever be. You uh, brought back memories when you started talking about the boosters and vaccinations when we were kids. Uh, what about vaccination for, for kids? I mean, you know, the, the under-18s and situations like that. Hasn't been a whole lot of talk about that right now. And, and the, you know, there's a couple of schools of thought as to whether or not, you know, they're more prone to it or less prone to it, which is, is I guess, going to influence people to some degree. But should there be a, a mass vaccination program for, for instance, elementary school kids, high school kids and that nature? I think so, um, and I, there's a few reasons why. One is that, um, you know, I think it's important that, you know, kids can go back to school in September, and, and mm-hmm. certainly the province has indicated that their goal is to get um, the 12 to 17 range, at least, um, vaccinated by September so that um, there's no hesitation about, you know, opening up schools again in the fall. And I think that's a very good goal to have. Uh, if there's only some kids vaccinated, then it's hard to understand, you know, how it'll work and whether they'll have to do testing and, or quarantining of kids or sending home, home classrooms, if, but maybe not if some are vaccinated. And, and do you get into a situation where there's um, this, like, inequality between kids who have been vaccinated and kids who haven't been vaccinated? If you think it through, it's really complicated unless, you know, most or all of uh, the, 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 the student population has been vaccinated. That's the best case scenario. And the other reason to do it is the fewer people um, who are available for the, to spread the virus, or said the other way around, the closer we are to herd immunity, the more people are vaccinated, the less this virus will circulate and, and potentially change into another variant that maybe escapes the vaccines. And then that's a problem for all of the rest of us who've already been vaccinated. So what we really want to do is get a lid on this thing so that uh, we don't have to worry about those eventualities either.
I mean, I, I'm thinking about, you know, the, the days when they used to do that. I, mean, I remember a young kid getting a polio vaccine and, as you say, the, the boosters for, for tetanus and a bunch of other things like that, too. But it was done in the school. And I, I don't know how practical that is now because especially it looks like as if we're not going to be sending the kids back to school till September at this stage. But uh, I'm just wondering how we do organize a, a vaccination program for kids, especially if they're going to be off for the summer. But uh, it's something I guess parents need to consider, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I mean, already... Um... Um, I'm only personally familiar with uh, you know, my local uh, health unit, which is here in Brant County. Um, but on their website, you can, and I've already registered my son um, to get his vaccine on Saturday mm-hmm. because they are, by age, uh, eligible to book a, an appointment. And you take them and they get their shot and away you go. So um, it's on families to, to find, you know, and, their local um, infrastructure, figure out their local infrastructure and book appointments and, and get it done, partly because of the cold chain issues compared to some of the older vaccine technologies, uh, which were simpler. Um, it's not really practical to do this in the schools, and the idea is to get it done before they go back to school. So, um, you know, the province is hoping that uh, parents will help their kids figure this out and get it done soon so that uh, everything go back to normal come September, which would be nice. Well, let me ask you about that. About, uh, I, I wanted to just maybe do a little crystal balling for us here because I know we all want to do that. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm waiting for the CFL season to get back in. And we know we're watching hockey games now south of the border. A game in Boston the other night, there's 17,000 people there at the TD Garden. I figured, boy, it's been a long time since that's happened. Uh, well, we have 500, I guess, to go see the Leafs the other night. Uh, when are we going to get to the stage where we're going to be comfortable and where the experts like yourself are going to be comfortable seeing crowds like that? Is it is it feasible that that it could happen here come fall September October something like that? If enough people get vaccinated, yeah, uh-huh. um, you know it's a bit of a people don't necessarily like to hear this, and people think differently about sort of civic duty now and so forth. But um, it's a little bit, uh, you know, about protecting yourself if you get vaccinated. But it's also a little bit. Um, I would say about doing your your part to to help get this pandemic over is to, to get vaccinated so that uh, um, we can get the numbers sorted out and case loads down so that uh, it's not worrisome to have large groups of people get together and enjoy a hockey game. No, exactly. Uh, well, here's hoping that they get the message, and uh, it, it sounds like there's some pretty positive news coming out these days, and of course the fact that uh, we can start using those uh, mix-and-match, I guess, vaccines for this is uh, probably, hopefully, going to motivate some folks to, to raise, uh, get their arms up there and get going on this, too. Uh, always great to get your perspective and some clarity on this, Doctor. Thanks so much for the time. Stay well, and uh, we'll talk again yep. soon, I hope. Yep, you too. Thank you. Take Bye. care. Dr. Brian Litchie, of course, uh, from the uh, McMaster Immunology Research Center uh, with a specific uh, expertise, of course, with molecular medicine. Uh, if you haven't got your shot yet, call and book. I know a lot of people sort of tried it and they gave up on it and they said, oh, you know, I got on hold. And they said, again, it's a lot easier now. I've talked to a number of people that have already booked their second uh, vaccine, some still booking for their first one. Uh, make sure you call and, and follow the good doctor's advice here. It's a civic duty. I mean, the more of us that get vaccinated, the sooner we can get back to normal and opening the stores up and the movie theaters and everything else. But uh, we all have a role to play in that, too, and it involves rolling up your sleeve. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. 
Well, after more than a year of working from home, many Canadians say that uh, they're, they're less than enthusiastic, shall we say, about heading back to the workplace. A Leger poll uh, this week that we talked about suggested 2 in 10 Canadians actually don't want to return to working in, uh, in their usual working place. A recent KPMG survey found that three-quarters would prefer what they call a hybrid model. Global's Anne Gaviola has some details for us. Experts warn of the perils of creating a two-tier workforce, where employees who choose less face-to-face time don't advance. In particular, there's concern about the potential for bias against women who disproportionately shoulder caretaking duties. We do create a risk that, that women will be held back in terms of advancing their careers if managers bring that bias in when the time comes to decide who gets promoted. There are a lot of details to work out, but some see tremendous opportunity to create more workable situations with other benefits. We know there's a housing crisis. There's a lot of uh, certainly a shortage of housing and housing is very expensive. I think that could be the beginning of a, a really interesting trend where companies maybe take a little less space and create more opportunities for housing. And Gaviola, Global News, Toronto. So it's not just a matter of when we're going to return to the workplace, but what's it going to look like and who's going to be beside us. Joining us to talk about this is Doran Melnick. Doran is a partner and national leader of people and change practice with KPMG. Uh, Doran, uh, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you on the program today. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, this is important stuff because, I mean, we've always kind of focused on, okay, when are we going to be able to go back to work? Uh, but what's that going to look like? And, you know, there's so many different factors in this. That I guess chief among them is the fact that, uh, you know, I think a lot of industries and a lot of companies right now have realized, you know what, maybe we don't need 5,000 square feet. Maybe we don't need to have everybody at work at the same time. How's that going to impact what, what we're going to look like going forward when we do finally go through those doors again? Bill, it's a, it's a great question, and every organization we speak to is asking that exact same question. How will, it, how will it look? How are we going to work? And so what we see is that organizations are asking their staff, asking their managers, what do they think? What would they like to see? And what they're getting back, for, in large part, is uh, a, part, you know, a partial model or what we call a hybrid model. Some people coming into the office uh, some of the time, working from home other days, uh, it could be anywhere between one day a week from home up to four, even five days a week from home. But most folks are saying somewhere in the middle, which means that uh, on any given day, part of your workforce is is working from home or working elsewhere. There was, and that's happened before the pandemic, of course, as, as we've talked about on the program here over the last little while. But it didn't happen to any great degree of regularity because they always seem to be, at, I guess, initially doing some trepidation. Well, what about you know uh, productivity? Are they going to work when they're actually at home, or are they just you know going to put in a couple of minutes and spend the rest of the time doing whatever they want, gardening around the house, whatever the case might be? Uh, from the from the management standpoint, are, are they over that now? Are they understanding that this can work? If we talk in general terms, yes, we've yeah. shown in the pandemic that people are productive. In fact, many people, they take the time that they saved from not commuting and they take that time and they invested in working more hours. And some of our research showed that, in, in fact, uh, you know, on the, you know, on, on the plus side, that's been great for, for companies who have enjoyed more productivity. On the minus side, for some employees, they've felt uh, they felt the effects. We've seen uh, almost a third of people reporting that they are close to burnout or have burned out. Uh, many people looking for alternative employment, maybe to get a change. We're not sure why, but that's uh, that that's, that seems to be coming through. At the same time, you know, there are people who are less productive from home. They're much more productive interacting with their peers, with their team members. 
Um, some people have jobs where they need to interact with customers or suppliers directly, and it's a lot tougher to do from home. So it's, uh, you know, it really depends on the situation, on, on the specific job that the person is doing and, and their, you know, their, their own personality and suitability to work on their own. And, and that's, I, I guess, one of the key issues here is going to have to be that communication. Uh, we had Dave Schultz from Leger who did the poll that I just referenced here before you and I started our conversation. Uh, he was on the show the other day talking about some of those results. And he, uh, you just suggested exactly what he was saying, that when you're working from home, uh, there's there's no line in the sand to say, okay, this is work, this is home, this is my private life. It, they just seem, it's a blurred line right now, and they blend into one another, and that can, can cause some real, I guess, anxiety and angst with people simply saying, I'm, I'm always working now. I'm always responding to emails. I'm always doing this. So there's, there's a plus and a negative to this, isn't there? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so uh, what we've, we, we've been working with organizations to help them to clarify what are the expectations? What you know? What what are what are considered to be your available working hours? How far in advance should you schedule with your manager when you will and won't be available? And and just try to be respectful to the team, to each other, uh, and 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 be transparent about what the expectations are. Um, it just is a, a perfect example is how quickly should you respond to an email? Do people expect an immediate response, or is it okay to reply within 24 hours, 48 hours? Um, and if you really need to speak to someone urgently, use, I don't know, use text or chat, uh, some different mechanism to, uh, to get across the urgency. Don, as you talk to your clients, uh, what are they doing to prepare for the return? Uh, at some point, there's going to be a decision made, as you say, about exactly who's going to be going back into the workplace. But, but it's, it's a new world. It's a different world. I mean, we're into the world of social distancing and, and masking. And uh, I, I, we get the impression from the, the experts we're talking to that that's probably not going to change anytime soon. How are these, how are these businesses going to adopt to that? So when businesses plan to bring people back to the office, they are they're obligated as employers to provide a health and safe you know a, a healthy and safe workplace mm-hmm. and so they need to be able to communicate and demonstrate to their employees what they've done uh, to implement the recommendations of public health authorities so things like physical distancing you know regular cleaning uh, access you know making sure that people are coming in uh, that they they've they've they've, they've reviewed the uh, you know the self-assessed symptoms um, and so companies should be able to communicate and demonstrate that to their employees. Uh, there has been a question about whether, whether businesses should require that their staff be vaccinated. And there's really no clear-cut answer to that. And the reason is that the government has not mandated vaccines. The government has not made it mandatory for people to get those vaccines. So uh, businesses can't force anyone to do that. Um, and, and they need to demonstrate, if they're going to do that, they need to be able to demonstrate that requiring the vaccine is a proportional response to the health risk. And if there are other ways to respond to the health risk through things like PPE and physical distancing, then they, you know, they can do that as an alternative. So there's, there's a lot of work has to go into this and a lot of planning as well. Uh, but let's, let's talk on, you mentioned something just a second ago that I wanted you to expand on. That's the, the hybrid model in the workplace. Uh, and, and the example, of course, is going to be, you know, okay, maybe some of my employees are not going to come into the office or maybe they're going to come in on a part-time basis. We don't need all this space. And the concern there, I guess, uh, in the short term is, uh, <laughs> what about people that own the buildings? You know, but are, are companies going to adopt it, it to this as well? You talked about a hybrid model where you may go back to the same physical building that you worked in before, but you might find there's another tenant there working side by side with you right now because they need space, you need space, but neither one of them need as much space as they did before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, there's some really interesting observations that we've seen. Um, you know, there's there are some companies that are planning to reduce their office space. They want to reduce it 10, 20 percent. Um, we saw subleases, uh, the availability of subleases in Toronto go up quite a bit uh, over the pandemic. And in order to do that, they're going to have to be really prescriptive. To, they're going to have to tell their staff when, when they can come in, when they can't come in. Um, then there are other organizations that are thinking, let's use the space that we have, but use it differently, which means that they're reconfiguring their space to create more meeting rooms or to create areas where teams can work together. And that makes a lot of sense if you're thinking that some of your staff are going to work from home some days, then on the days that they come to the office, they should be coming to do work where they're going to be interacting with others and working with their teams. So that, you know, it, it, that, that, that makes sense. Talk about the subleases because there's there's a legal requirement here. Obviously, I mean, if I if I'm my company has a long term lease with the, the building that, that I you know my business is is using, uh, I can't just go back to them and say, hey, I only need half the space right now. I mean, I've signed a lease on that. Or are, are the landlords or the owners of these properties uh, willing to be flexible about this so that they you know to, for this hybrid model that you talked about because it's it's going to take uh, a little give and take. I would think. You would think so. Yes. Yeah, as it happens, I don't work with real estate organizations, so I can't comment on that. Mm -hmm. But uh, absolutely, if if I were a business owner or or, or a renter, I would look at my lease and see what options I have. Um, But also, you know, again, like I would, I'd recommend, you know, thinking about how do you want to use the space that you already have to get more collaboration uh, going. And also don't forget, you're going to be working with physical distancing. Even if half your staff come in, you might still need your full space because uh, because of the physical distancing requirement. So that's yeah, that's obviously going to be a factor in this as well. So how is how is the the workplace and and the greater workplace, for instance, a downtown core? And you mentioned Toronto a few minutes ago. Uh, what's that going to look like? Is is there going to be a lot a lot of office space? Are some companies simply going to say we don't need this anymore? Uh, we're going to use a lot more working from home right now. Uh, there's going to be a concern there, but the economic impact that's going to have if there's going to be vacant buildings is is that going to be a concern going forward? If it pans out that companies don't come back and let their leases expire, yeah, it's going to have a big economic impact. Right now, that's not what we're seeing. Uh, it's the, the data is kind of mixed. We see that, um, yes, vacancies are up, but rental rates are still high, which means that the landlords are expecting to fill the space. Uh, certainly, the real estate firms are very optimistic that companies will come back, that people will come back. Um, and even if it's not all the people, the space will be used. It'll just be used a little bit differently. Fewer desks and more meeting rooms. We sort of saw that before the pandemic, though, didn't we, Doran? I mean, you know, there a lot of startups and some some very entrepreneurial ideas coming up, and and you know, a lot of places don't need, uh, you know, five thousand employees. I mean, sometimes some of these little startups only have four or five employees, uh, so they'd be looking for shared space. I would think in a situation like that. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that shared space, and also the way that the space is designed. Uh, I spoke to one client that uh, recently um, acquired a space downtown. And they've made the decision to design it in a way that's configurable and flexible so they can, um, you know, shrink and expand the size of the meeting rooms. They can move the desks around really easily. Everything's on wheels. And so you do expect that there's going to be more flexible use of space and even sharing like what you're suggesting. So it's almost like a business on wheels then. You, you, in other words, you, you, you can <laughs> just configure it in a different fashion. Like, you know, okay, we need more space today. Uh, we can contract if we don't need that much space. And, and that it, it's kind of a malleable business operation that you're, they, they'd be running then. 
Exactly, exactly. And even, you know, like it used to be a, a world where you had the same desk every day that, mm-hmm. that, you know, that that has started even a few years ago, that started to change where people, uh, you, people have to book their desk for a day. It might be different every day. Uh, we call it hoteling or hot desking. That's been in place in some companies already for a few years. Well, how's that working? That's an interesting concept. So, yeah, I mean, what what happens is, uh, you know, an employee, uh, I mean, first of all, the company communicates that they're supportive of people working remotely, working from home. Uh, Some of them even provide guidance. We expect you to work from home one or two days a week. Schedule in in advance with your manager so they're aware and and coordinate with your team so that, you know, it's evenly evenly distributed. But basically, uh, you know, the night before you come in, you log on to a system online and you can find, you can see which desks are available. And you book one. Uh, I went through this myself, working at KPMG in our office in downtown Toronto. We've had this kind of system in place now for uh, for at least you know seven or eight years. It's it's got to be good, I think, for the employee too, doesn't it? Because I mean, it gives you a, a different perspective. You're not staring at the same wall or the same you know building across the street or something like that. It it it, it you know changes things up a little bit, which I think would actually probably be a, a healthier workplace then. Well, it is. It forces people to um, circulate and interact yeah. and sit next to people that they might otherwise not sit next to. So it's great for social interaction. Um, although I can tell you it is a little bit stressful if you forget to book your desk and realize it's the morning <laughs> of. It's a bit of a scramble. It always gets resolved. It just, uh, it's just a bit of stress in the morning that you might not otherwise need. How would you advise companies that are listening to our, to our conversation right now to say, you know what, I, I need to consider options like that? Where, who, who should they be talking to to try to uh, give them some concepts and ideas as to how they might incorporate some of these things into their business? Uh, well, they can certainly talk to us. Uh, and then, you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, companies that uh, deal in in office design and use of real estate. I mean, if, if you're working with a landlord, then, you know, there's it's quite possible that, uh, they offer a service to to give you recommendations on how to configure your space, uh, how to put in place tools like the ones I've described. Um, office design firms, you know, and, you know, that, that do the architecture and interior design. They also many of them offer consulting services um, of, of that type. In a situation like this, and you mentioned some of the concerns that you've got with health and safety, of course, and that's something every company I know is is, is very aware of, and they're going to have to incorporate a lot of that stuff going forward. Uh, do you anticipate that when we do get back into this, I don't even going to call it normal, because I don't think anything is going to be normal again, uh, that these companies should phase the return in as, as opposed to just saying, okay, everybody, next Monday it's back to the office, and we'll kind of sort it out from there. Do you? Uh, I mean, we're used to this. I mean, I'm, I've been working from home here since, well, March of last year. I know where the building is, but it's going to take a while, and it's going to take some some adjustment, I guess, to get back into it. Uh, how how would you advise companies to to take part in this? Should it be phased in, or just let's let's just go and get in back in there? Uh, well, it depends on the size of the company. I think if you've got you know a small company and you've got five, ten, fifteen staff, I don't think it's a big deal to bring everybody back in because mm-hmm. you know everyone and it's easy to communicate. It's easy to manage. The larger you are, the more deliberate you're going to have to be. And you use the word phased approach, which is exactly what we would recommend. Um, do it in stages. Take your time. You know, be cautious and see how things go and adjust your plan if you need to. Uh, the most important thing is communicate. Communicate with your team. Let them know what you're planning. Let them know what you've decided. Also, let them know what you haven't decided or haven't figured out yet. The more transparency, generally, the better. 
and and the smart companies, which is the ones, of course, that you work with, uh, they they're doing that anyway. I mean, there has to be a communication, even if you're working from home. You know, to have supervisors uh, touch base with you every now and then, see how things are going, and, and you know how can you, you can improve the situation. So that dialogue is should be ongoing, I would think. It should be. It should be. But it's tough. I can tell you when we're working remotely, the concept of out of sight, out of mind, mm-hmm. it happens and we forget and we lose touch with each other. So it's just a reminder to, uh, to, to, to stay in, in close touch. It's, it's a different approach to this, and I think a very novel approach and very effective approach on this, too. I'm glad you had some time to talk to us about it today, Doran. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. Thank you, Bill. Take care. Doran Melnick, of course, is with uh, KPMG, a partner and national leader of people and change practice. And uh, if you're running a company and thinking about how you're going to incorporate the return to work when, in fact, it does happen, and it is going to happen apparently sooner than later, uh, you might want to talk to these folks and lots of other places out there that could give you some assistance on that as well. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.